0: Welcome to another episode of Men's Bible Study. Our discipleship and teaching pastor, Bo Landers, joins us today to continue our series titled Mad Men of the Old Testament. Today, Bo takes the term mad in a different direction as he teaches from the book of Nehemiah. Now, let's hear from Bo. Uh, So, I am not John Mark. It's ironic. So, yesterday, John Mark was sitting there, he was walking around, he was trying to be a champion. Uh, the champion that he is. And he, we asked him, we said, uh, Pastor, how's your, how's your knee doing? And he said, oh yeah, it's great. I'm really on the road to recovery. He's not here this morning. Um, <laughs> so naturally overdid it. So just keep keep him in your prayers. He was in good spirits, obviously, but uh, that can flare up. If you have a Bible, turn it to Nehemiah. All right. So we have been going through this series of mad men of the Old Testament. And um, as as we kind of Focus in on this idea. One of the thoughts that I had was, I think a lot of the guys that we focus when we say mad, uh, we mean somehow crazy or bad or something like that. As we open Nehemiah, I, I took mad a little bit different direction uh, because really Nehemiah gets mad, and so he is a madman of the Old Testament, just in a little bit different kind of way because he's going to get mad and frustrated at the Israelites. And so here's what I want to do uh, this morning, all right? So we're going to go over, I'm going to give a little bit of kind of the background, and we're eventually going to get to Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to go all the way to the end, because Nehemiah probably is a story, at least you're vaguely familiar with, in his rebuilding of the walls. Uh, But sometimes we we get to the end of the story, we get to about chapter 8, where the law is read, everything is good, uh, but then we never really quite finish the book. And so really I want to focus in on the back chapter, of this book kind of fill in a little bit and really begin to focus in on this idea of obedience. What does obedience look like for us as people? Uh, especially for us as guys, like how are we called to be obedient uh, according to what we what we see here um, in Nehemiah. So again, we're going to focus in on that. Uh, let me give just a little bit of history. I love the history of Israel. I think it helps frame the entire Bible for us. And so I just kind of want to break down quickly where we are in the story, because again, I, I, I picture it like this, like I feel like growing up, I was handed a lot of different, this is the analogy I've used, if you you probably heard me say it, but I feel like i uh, I was handed a lot of puzzle pieces to the Bible, right? You ever feel that way where somebody comes in and they're like, here's the story of David. Here's the story of Moses. Here's the story of, and and you get all of these stories, but it's like somebody hands you puzzle pieces and you're just sitting there with all these puzzle pieces and and, and you don't quite know what to do with them. One of my favorite things to do is to step back. And you know, when you're making a, uh, doing a puzzle, you got to see the lid to the box, right? You have to see exactly what you're making. And so what I like to do is be able to tell the story of the Old Testament because then you take those individual puzzle pieces and you're able to actually place them and frame them within the context of the Bible. And so uh, whether you're online, obviously, or here, it's good to see you guys online, by the way. I know I kind of jumped into it. Just want to wave to you. It's great to see you. I know none of you. I got one wave and everybody else is just a name. So, you know, uh, there, oh, two, there we go. Thank you for that. All right, good. All right, so again, Nehemiah 13 is where we're at, but let's get there as far as Israel's history. So um, in the beginning, no, I'm not going to go back that far, all right? So some of you guys are worried, all right? We're going to get out of here at nine. All right, but uh, so you know God has his special people, right? He establishes this covenant. Uh, They get put in captivity. Moses comes in, lets them out. They're headed to the promised land. And here's what we know, right? God had promised them this land. This was a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God was going to bless them. All right? They were going to be his people. He was going to be their God. And within that land, they were given a covenant, right? And so uh, with that covenant, this covenant was basically if you want to flourish as a people, If you want to um, do all, if you do all that God has commanded you to do, you follow these commands that he gives you, then you will flourish as a people. You will be to me a special possession, a kingdom of priests, to use Exodus 19 language. Like this is who Israel, God's people, were called to be. However, what we see is as we go through Israel's history, whether it's the judges or it's the uh, united monarchy where they start having kings, uh, they can't quite do that, can they? Right? So you have Saul who comes in, then you have David, and then you have Solomon, and eventually the kingdom splits in two. Now when I say splits, right, so you've got the northern kingdom that goes up north, the southern kingdom that goes south. You see how, why they call them that, right? The northern, yeah? All right, good. I'm just making sure. All right, we're awake. So the northern kingdom goes up, and eventually uh, they get conquered by the Assyrians at about 722 B.C., about, a, uh, about 150 years later, the southern kingdom gets conquered. Now, what, why that's significant is this. Because when the southern kingdom gets conquered, they, they de- completely, and this is by Babylon, they completely destroy the temple. Now, here's what we know about the temple. Part of being God's people is that they would have this temple where all of a sudden God dwelled with humanity. And so this was important. Because now Israel was distinct among the nations not only because they had a God like Yahweh, but because that Yahweh came down and he dwelled in their midst. And that's the whole thing of what they lost in the Garden of Eden. And so it's really significant to say, oh, all of a sudden the temple is destroyed, so what becomes of the people? That was kind of their distinguishing mark. And so from that point, they get put into the exile, right, or the exilic period. And so this is where you have some of the prophets come in, and they spend about 70 years in the exile, and then all of a sudden Persia, okay, defeats, there'll be a test after this, all right, you gotta get, get all the history pieces, all right, Persia defeats Babylon, and when they defeat Babylon, they say, hey, all of you Jewish people, all of you Israelites, you can come back into the city. Now, some of them do, some of them don't, some of them have been established in the outskirts, they've been spread out for a while, they kind of stay where they are. But some do eventually come back. And so what we find ourselves as we're headed into the book of Nehemiah is this. They are, uh, they were in exile, they're allowed to come back, and as they come back into the city, the problem is, is that they're still under foreign rule, right? So they're still under this pagan kind of influence, this pagan kind of rule. They're allowed to come back into the city, but something's still amiss, So to speak. And if you go read, say, the book of Esther, you can see how um, over and over again, um, Esther is a really interesting book because God's name is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther. And in fact, when you get into like the canonization process, it was one of like five books in the Old Testament that people questioned whether it was part of the Bible or not because God's name was not in it. But what it really communicates is that even though it seems like God is silent, God is clearly working. You go read the book of Esther, and you see God's providential and sovereign hand over the entire thing. And though his name's not mentioned, I think it actually communicates exactly what's happening in that post-exilic period. That God is being God, and he is orchestrating all the events according to his glory and his good. Now, I say that because Esther paints that picture. Then you get to a book like Ezra. Ezra comes in, and one of the primary focuses of the book of Ezra is that they begin to rebuild the temple. Now you think, temple's been destroyed, they've been in exile, they get to come back, what should they do? Be God's people again, right? So what are they going to do? They're going to they're build this temple again, and so they do just that. Well, by the time you get into Nehemiah, Nehemiah's coming in around the same time. The temple is rebuilt, but the walls of the city all the way around Jerusalem are in shambles. All right, and so you got to think of it almost like if somebody rolls up to your house, all right, and uh, they're looking. You, anybody just a, a grass freak like they love a very cut, clean grass like you. You love that. Anybody not like doesn't care. <laughs> not care. At all. I got a neighbor down the road. He has golf grass like literally, and I think he mows three times a week, um, and it is pristine. It's nicer than any of the golf courses around here. That's for darn sure. But uh, I mean, it's just pristine, right? So in some ways, what the walls of the city do in fortifying the city, it's like somebody rolls up and they're going to tell, okay, is this a, a, a house that's put together or is this a city that's falling apart pretty much? And the walls became part of the identity of Israel and they were all in shambles. And so Nehemiah, at the beginning of Nehemiah, if you remember reading those first few chapters, he's grieving because he knows the former glory of God's people. However, what happened? The walls are in shambles. They may have a temple now, but they're just still not identifying as God's people. So this is really the story of Nehemiah. And again, I said we're going to go to chapter 13. So you begin reading the story and you have, I mean, you have incredible leadership principles in there where you follow Nehemiah and you see how he's leading and you see how he's going to cause these different kinds of reforms. He has compassion on the people. He's hardworking. Um, he's always ready, right? Remember the sword and the trowel? Uh, that was one of my favorite little scenes in the entire book where uh, he tells his men, he's like, hey, go build the wall. And he says, in one hand, keep your trowel so you can keep building the but in another, have your sword ready for battle, right? In some ways, I mean, that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it, right? Like that we are constantly called to work, but always be ready to defend, always be ready for the gospel. And and so you see that scene, and then you have obviously moments of opposition throughout that where people are coming up against him. Um, But eventually, in 52 days, if you remember the story, they rebuild the entire walls of the city. And you have a Jerusalem, right, you have a a people of God that are reestablished their identity, okay? So that's kind of the, the nature and where we are in the book of Nehemiah. And so when the exiles return, and I know uh, you got chapter 13, that's primarily where we'll be. This is going to spin on me the whole time, I think. Uh, the, uh, we're primarily in 13. I'm going to read some different pieces. So I want to read one section from, from chapter 8. There's a sense to where when the walls are built and everything is good, you get to chapter 8, verse 8 and 9, and you can hear Israel's repentance you can hear man this is a really good thing verse 8 they all of a sudden they they bring about and and this is what's supposed to happen right Uh, it's in fact it's given in the law Israel is supposed to read out loud the the law to their people to remind their people and if you remember there's parts in the monarchy where they completely lose the law Like, they don't even know where it's at. One dude goes into the temple. He's like, hey, uh, Josiah, I found a book. Like, that's all they call it. I found a book. He goes in and Josiah rips his clothes. He's like, oh, my gosh, this isn't just a book. Like, this is the law from God. This is who we're called to be. And then you have this scene in Nehemiah where everything seems to be going super well. Verse 8, it says, They read out loud the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, this day, right, so the walls are done, this is what they're declaring, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. I mean, you've got to put yourself in the scene. You've had centuries of rebellion. And at this point, you have a sense to where we can be who God has called us to be. And so if you keep reading the, the, the story and you keep following sort of what happens, eventually they, they offer a nationwide confession uh, of sin. They kind of uh, lay out where they are. They have a variety of uh, people. There's a variety of lists of people there. And all of that, again, is just sort of building this momentum. Eventually you get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, 46 and 47... It says this, okay, and this kind of uh, becomes the, um, this is like the, the, the peaking point. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of the singers and songs of praise to thanksgiving to God. Now, this is a, a recall. They couldn't remember the last time that they were this united. So what do they do? They said, we remembered the days of David when everything was right. And then he says in verse 7, so in the days of Zerubbabel, all right, which is a great name to name your kids, right, um, and Nehemiah. So now they're comparing the days of Nehemiah to those of David. I mean, this, the one commentator said, it was the best of times. Like, this is where we're at. All of Israel contributed the the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the daily portions for the Levites. And the Levites set aside the daily portions for Aaron's descendants. Now, all that means is that they were doing exactly what God had called them to do. Temples rebuilt. The city is exactly as it should be. The people have confessed their sin. There's a revival that's now happened and happening within the camp. And you think at this point that, man, if the book of Nehemiah ended here, this would be a really, really high point. And you could almost say, man, Israel could fix this problem themselves by simply being obedient. The problem is, is the book doesn't end there. You got a whole nother chapter And it's important to see how chapter 13 fits into the rest of the story because it's a reminder that in the context of obedience, when you depend on yourself to be obedient to the Lord, you will fail. And so we're going to look quickly at these four lessons of obedience that I think come from number, uh, Nehemiah 13. We can go to Numbers 13, too. That'd be a fun one, too. But uh, Nehemiah 13, we're going to look at four quick lessons of obedience that I think come out, right, in this. That we're going to see the nature of the sin that's inside of each of us, right? Israel is representative of who we are as people. That our heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17. But then also our need for a Nehemiah-like savior, to ultimately lead us so that we can be obedient. And that's really what we want to focus in on. So four quick lessons on obedience. Number one, uh, the first thought is this, is that in the context of obedience, sin is cancerous. Sin is cancerous to the people of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, why why cancer? Well, let's pick up in chapter 13. Let's pick up in verse 1. At that time, the book of Moses, okay, again, that's the law that's being read, was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them, but our God turned the curse into blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. So if you pause right there, they're basically just, again, it's another commendation. Hey, this is what they weren't, they weren't supposed to allow the foreigners to lead the people because the foreigners ultimately, if you look at Israel's history, they constantly led them away from God, right? God is not xenophobic so much as he is heightening his covenant relationship with his people. And that, that becomes the the focus there. So again, it's good, but then you get to verse four. It says, now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Now he was a relative of Tobiah. Now this is important because if you've read the story of Nehemiah, Tobiah is not a good dude. Okay, let me keep reading this and then we'll go to go and see some of the stuff that Tobiah had done. So he was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room. For him, where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the the Levite singers and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all of this was happening, again, Nehemiah is the first person here. Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king to leave in the absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. All right, so what happened? You got this guy named Elisha. They're supposed to set aside these certain rooms for grain offerings, for for ultimately for, for these tithes and for these offerings. They're supposed to protect God's house and what they had done is they had established Eliashib, and Eliashib said, hey, Tobiah, I see that you're homeless. Why don't you come live here? There's a great spot. Now, you may be thinking, okay, who's this guy, Tobiah? There's several different passages of scripture uh, that kind of tell us who Tobiah are. If you go back to like, and again, I'm just going to go over these quickly, so you might not see it on the screen, but um, to verse 10. All of a sudden, in the midst of these reforms, uh, you have this guy named Tobiah who's, interest, uh, who's introduced. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone was going to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. So now that's the first introduction. Israelites are going to go rebuild the walls. What does Tobiah say? No, 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 no. That can't happen. You keep reading. You go down to like verse 19 of chapter 2. When at the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So now they have sort of national interests that are involved. They're like, Israel can't reestablish themselves. They don't want to do that. So what happens is it grows. So then Israel starts rebuilding. And you get to chapter 4, verse 3. Who's this Tobiah? Again, is the question. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside himself, said, Indeed, if a fox climbed up that uh, what they were building, he would break down their stone wall. What is he doing? Tobiah's coming in. He's looking at him rebuilding the wall. And he's like, oh, hey, little guys, if a fox jumps on that, right? I mean, it's just, it's a crazy little, just, he's mocking them. Just straight up, like if a fox jumped on that wall, it would, it would bust. You keep reading. Uh, you look at uh, verse 7, just a few more verses down. When Samballot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of their walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. And then all of that peaks in chapter 6, and, and again, it's a story you can go back and read. Um, 6, all the way through verse 19, you can see Tobiah being this constant oppressor to Israel. You can see Tobiah in the midst of Israel trying to repair and reestablish themselves. It's Tobiah who's kind of leading the charge. And so now think for a second. You get to get back to chapter 13 and it's like Elieishab, he does this and he's like, hey, Tobiah, I see that you're homeless. Why don't you come live over here? Now all of a sudden we got a problem, right? But what's interesting is that that's not just the problem, right? So Nehemiah... What in the story, so he reestablishes the walls. Israel seems to be going well. Everything is good. We just read that. And where does Nehemiah go? He returns to the king. That was his promise that he's fulfilling all the way back in the first chapter. Now, when, when Nehemiah goes back to the king, now the people are left in some ways. They shouldn't be left leaderless, but they are left leaderless. And what happens? Something as simple as Eliashib inviting Tobiah in begins to infect the entire Israelite camp. It's really fascinating if you go read Israel's history and you go read some of the stories of how Israel ultimately came uh, came to be and how their sin happened it, the sin among other people ultimately begins to affect the entire Israelite community. Why? Because sin is like a cancer cell. In many ways you begin to read Israel's history and you're reminded constantly that in terms of obedience, if you let just a little sin linger, all of a sudden, it's going to infect your whole body. That's some of what we're seeing here. We have one instance of sin, yet it's going to, as we're about to read in the rest of chapter 13, it's going to infect the whole entire camp. It's a reminder for us that I think that, number one, we're not as good as we think we are, and number two, the more that we let sin linger around in our lives, the more it's going to infect our body. Why? Because we learn that's exactly what happened to Israel over and over and over again, right? If you ever went to a cancer screening and they said, hey, you have one cancer cell in your body, would you say, oh, that's great, just leave it? No, that's crazy, right? Why? Because cancer cells multiply rapidly. In fact, if you, you know somebody, or maybe you've gone through cancer treatments yourself, what do you want the doctors to do? Eradicate the whole thing. Over and over again in Israel, that's the analogy that I think that it best serves us that we have to remind ourselves that sin is cancerous. And we see that, and we're going to see that play out. Here's the second thought. Four lessons on obedience. Sin is cancerous. The second thought is this. Intent to obey does not equal obedience. Let me say that again. Your best of intentions to obey what God has laid out does not equal or equate to actual obedience. Sometimes we run around and we're like, you know, man, I'm, I'm just going to really do better. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do what God has said. And we, we say all these things. We pump ourselves up. We have this right kind of intent to obey, but then we don't follow through with it. Let me just be as clear as possible. Your intent to obey is not obedience. And I think we see that here. So what's interesting is, is that as you read chapter 13 of Nehemiah, um, and Nehemiah comes back, right? And some scholars say he was away for about a decade. It's a little bit debatable, but he was away for a good amount of time. But he clearly sees that the reforms that he had implemented have gone to the wayside. But what's interesting is if you go back to chapter 10, right, right when the, the wall, they're at their peak, they're, they're talking about, man, this is who we are. Listen to what they say beginning at around verse 28. says the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who was able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant, Moses, and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our God. What are they saying? Walls are built we are reestablished, confession has been made, we will follow the law of God. That's what they say. Then what else do they say? Keep reading verse 3. Not only are we going to follow the law, we're going to follow some specifics of the law. It says, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples. And we will not take our daughters as wives for our sons. In other words, um, uh, when uh, intermarrying, uh, uh, kind of this idea of of marrying from outside of Israelites' camp over and over again in the Old Testament is bad. If you go look at, we're going to see here in a moment, Solomon, for instance, because they brought about their pagan practices, right? It's not like the, the women are the problem. It's that ultimately they're going to be influenced by the different religions that are going to be infiltrating the camp, like a cancer cell. But they keep going. They make more vows. They say, when the surrounding peoples bring merchandise of any kind and sell on the Sabbath day, we will not, bury, uh, we will not buy from them. They won't bury them either, I suppose. Uh, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will will uh, cancel every debt. This is a little fascinating point because really the, the, the commitment here is they're saying the, the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic covenant. So by obeying the Sabbath, they're saying we're going to keep the whole law. Furthermore, they're saying at that last line, they're saying, we're not only going to keep the Sabbath, we're going to keep the sabbatical year, which is like one of every seven years, right? All throughout Israel's history, nobody had ever kept the sabbatical year according to any part of the narrative. It was part of God's law, but you don't ever see Israel doing it. And here you have Nehemiah and, and the people saying, we'll even go as far to do that. But keep going. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. And if you keep reading, all right, and just for the sake of time, you can go through and they make all of these vows. They basically say, God, we see your law. We've rebuilt everything. We will obey. Now, this isn't the first time Israel's done this, is it? Right? Right after uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Moses comes before the people and they they get all the law. We will follow. Remember at the end of the book of Joshua, they go conquest the the promised land and you get to that that Joshua chapter 24 and they come in and and, and they're like, listen, Joshua comes before me. He's like, look, here's what you got to do. You got to get rid of all of these gods and you need to follow the Lord. This is who who he's called. You need to obey his law. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people come by and they're like, yeah, we will too. And Joshua looks at him. He says, no, you won't. Go read Joshua 24. He comes back in. He says, no, you won't. Because your heart has not, is not fully committed, fully devoted to the Lord. Yet over and over again, you hear Israel's refrain, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. But then they don't. Nothing's different here, right? They have all of these vows, but then you get to chapter 13. And what happens? We, we stopped in verse, uh, uh, let's say, let's go back to verse 6 of 13. While this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I would returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence. So again, that's the context. So I could return to Jerusalem. Then what had happened? Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts in the house of God. They had vowed and they had promised to protect God's house. Here they had defiled it. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored along with the grain offerings and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and singers and performers had gone back to his own field. In other words, they were supposed to give so that the priesthood was protected. And they weren't doing that. Guess what they had done in chapter 10? We vow to protect the priests. We vow to give our tithes and offerings. What didn't they do? The same thing. Literally, if you go read uh, Nehemiah 10, and you see all of the vows that they, that they, uh, they had promised, which... Um, and again, let me, let me turn it. I've kind of summarized these. They say, I'm going to obey Moses. I'm going to be against intermarrying. I'm going to obey the Sabbath. I'm going to provide tithes and offerings. I'm not going to neglect God's house. You go to chapter 13, and they violate every single one of those commands in reverse order. You can literally see from a textual argument, they build, and they say, we're going to vow, we're going to vow, we're going to vow. And then all of a sudden, you get to chapter 13, and they do the very opposite in, in, in reverse order. It's like you see a total unraveling. They neglect God's house in 13, 4 through 9. They don't give in 10 through 14 of chapter 13. They profane the Sabbath in 15 through 22. They intermarry in 23 through 28. And then ultimately they desecrate Moses is the line there in verse 29. Literally you have a people who say my intent is to obey the law. But then when left up to their own devices without a Nehemiah-like figure to lead them, what do they do? They can go right back into obedience. What do we learn about obedience in this context then? Intent does not equal obedience. It can't. You need something else, which gets us to our third point. Four lessons on obedience. Sin is cancerous. Intent does not equal obedience. And then here's the third thought. Trying to obey in your own strength will naturally result in failure. Trying to obey what the Lord has commanded you to obey will naturally result in failure. Now some of that we just talked about. We've seen it in the book of Nehemiah. We've seen how they vowed and they intended to do this, but ultimately they couldn't do it. This is our reminder for us. When God has called you to obey what he has called you to obey, when he's called you to be the kind of man, the kind of husband, the kind of grandfather, the kind of uh, father to your kids and to your family, when he's called you to be the kind of coworker that is honorable, that is trustworthy, the key is, is that no matter how much we try and white-knuckle our way through life, saying, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to be a better person, I'm going to be a better person, if you only depend on you, you will fall, it happens. How do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is looking and he gives this recap of of, uh, Israel's history And after giving this recap of Israel's history, my Bible calls it the warnings from Israel's past. And you get to chapter 10 and he goes down to verse 11. And he says this, right? And this is, I think, Nehemiah is just one example. He says, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for what? Our instruction. On whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12 is important. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. What is Paul saying? He's building an entire argument saying, look, if you go look at Israel's history, we can learn from their past because over and over again, they had the right intent to obey. They couldn't obey. And if you think that you're better than Israel, go think again because you can't do it. You need something else trying to obey. And we have to get this through. Now, you may ask the question, well, why is that? Well, if you go to a passage like Deuteronomy 10, I mean, we're talking all the way back in the law. Why is it that Israel couldn't obey? If you go to Deuteronomy 10 and you look at verse 15, God had given him the law and he basically, and if you go even back to verse 12, it says, and now Israel, what does the Lord accept? Uh, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? You can hear it. You don't want to, you want to know what God wants from you? Right there, verse 12. To keep the Lord's commands and statutes I'm giving you today for your own good, That's what God wants from all of us. The problem is, is that we can't do it by ourselves. Verse uh, verse 14, the heavens indeed declare the highest heaven belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Then verse 15, yet the Lord had his heart set on your fathers and loved them. He chose their descendants after them. He chose you out of all the peoples as it is today. Why does God give his commands to Israel? Because he loves them. Why does God want you to obey? Because he loves you. But then notice verse 16. Therefore, and this is, I think, one of the keys of the entire Old Testament. Therefore, circumcise, not your foreskins, circumcise what? Your hearts? And don't be stiff-necked any longer. One of the heartbeats of the Old Testament is that Israel is given a law that when they are left up to their own strength, they cannot do on their own. If you go through life thinking you can obey God by yourself, you can't do it. Why? Because you need a heart that has been circumcised, not just the external thing that looks like it. That's the whole point of the Old Testament in many ways. That points us over and over again. We need a Nehemiah-like figure to come in and save us. We need a Nehemiah-like figure to follow who can lead us. When it comes to the circumcision of the heart, well, how does that come to be? Well, if the law was written on a heart of stone, Jeremiah 17 says it's written on our hearts, that, that our sin is written and engraved on our hearts like a, like a diamond stylus, it says, in Jeremiah 17. That, it, that it's basically inscribed on us, like, very much like the stones that Moses wrote the, the law out in. But then you go to a passage like Ezekiel 36. I know you guys were there earlier this morning, all right? But in, in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I love this. Because again, this is the heart of the, the new covenant that's coming. This is the heart of what Jesus is about to do for us. He says, I will give you what? A new heart. He says in Ezekiel 36. What was promised and said, you need a circumcised heart all the way back in Deuteronomy 10. You can't obey the law by yourself. If you do and you try, your intent isn't as good as obedience. You need a new heart. Then the promise of Ezekiel is that I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and then what? I will cause you to follow. The Lord says that when he gives you a new heart, he will cause you to follow all of his statutes. He will cause you to follow all of his commands. To fully observe my ordinance is something the very Israel could not do by themselves. And so when you come to the four lessons of obedience, what are we learning from Nehemiah? Sin is cancerous. Intent does not equal obedience. Trying to obey in your own strength will naturally lead to failure because you need a heart that is circumcised. But what is promised in the new covenant that we now see in Jesus is that he gives you a heart that is beating. He gives you a heart that has life. He gives you a heart that can actually obey what God has laid out for you to obey. So that brings us to the fourth point then. Therefore, your obedience is determined by who you follow. Your obedience is determined by who you follow. If you go to Nehemiah 13, and you go down to the very last couple of verses, Nehemiah is sitting there and he's offered all of these things. He comes in and tries to reform them one more time, but he knows that in his absence, sin ran amok. The people didn't follow Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in many ways, points us to the kind of leader who helps us obey. But he, he's not perfect, is he? Why? Because he ultimately dies. He leaves the people. People go into sin. But notice what he prays in 29 and 30 and 31. Remember them, my God, for, for defiling the priesthood, as well as the covenant and the priesthood of the Levites. So he's praying. He says, remember them and, and their sin. But then, notice in verse thirty. So I purified them with everything, uh, uh, from everything foreign and assigned specific du- uh, duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. I, I-, I don't believe that Nehemiah is getting arrogant here. I think he's re- in his prayer. He's saying, "God, please see my faithfulness. I've tried to lead these people." as best as i could but these people have defiled your name i've tried to be the kind of leader but i'm still not the best leader who can lead them into perpetual obedience what we're reminded of in nehemiah and what nehemiah points us to in many ways is the leader that we need this leader named jesus who comes in and he lives a life of obedience that we can't live and he, he dies this death so that we don't have to. And he raises from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he says, all of you who follow me, not only are you saved, you'll be given a new heart. As you've been given a new heart, you can obey what you couldn't previously obey. That's the miraculous work of what Jesus does. Because now instead of a a, a temple that's all the way out there, that you have to sort of have gradations of holiness where you're going to approach in some way. Now where is the temple? We are the temple. Why? Because his righteousness has been given to us so that his spirit comes inside of us. So that now his spirit is breathing in us so that we can actually obey in a way that we previously couldn't. That's the miracle of salvation. And if you're living a life where you keep just trying to white-knuckle your way through obedience saying, I can do better, I can do better, I can do better, the answer is no you can't unless you get down on your knees before the Lord and King of Kings, you humble yourself and you learn to become dependent upon Him, dependent upon the heart that He has given you. You learn to follow Jesus. You learn to love Jesus. You learn to give your devotion to King Jesus. Because the only way that you can be who God has called you to be is if you follow the leader like Jesus. Because he's the only one who can do that. Matthew 16, I want to end here. What does he say? Matthew 16, and again, Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, and he looks at them, and if you go down to verse 24... A verse you probably heard. You talk about, okay, well this last point, your obedience is determined by who you follow. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. You ever ask the question why? Because if you don't, you're gonna end up disobedient just like all the rest of Israel. You've gotta deny yourself if you wanna come to, the, to, come to King Jesus' throne. Because if you are left up to your own devices and your own heart, you will fall. But it says, if you want to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. When it comes to obedience, you may be beating your head against the wall saying, I just can't do it. Part of it is admitting defeat. But then the next part is, the next part is this. That ultimately, if you want to do what God has called you to do, go follow Jesus by denying yourself, falling in love with this King Jesus, who says, I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can obey me. I will help you do what you cannot do. It's one of my favorite phrases to say to my kids. You need to learn to pray, God, help me do what I don't want to do. Help me do what I can't do. Simply obedience. And so the nature of our obedience is dependent upon the one we follow. And we follow King Jesus. And when he reigns in your heart, when he reigns in your life, we can do what we can't do. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we've had together to unpack uh, the book of Nehemiah just a little bit. Lord, I thank you for being faithful. Uh, God, I thank you that even as we fall over and over again, God, that your grace is so big. That your forgiveness is so good. That even in the midst of our falling and our our repeated falling, that you forgive us. You pick us back, back up. And you say, follow me. What a glorious salvation we have. What a glorious gospel and good news we have. That we, over and over again, in our failures and our faults, can come to your throne, get down on our knees. You forgive us, you lift us up, and you say, follow me. Let our heart of obedience chase after you. It's in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen and amen. Guys, it's great being with you this morning. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to today's Bible study more information regarding Cottonwood Creek, go to cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you tune in next time for more episodes of Men's Bible Study.